Uh, great, thank you, Stanley. So, yeah, so I was really uh, honoured to be invited to give this presentation, and originally I was asked to present on my work looking at BMI and DNA methylation, which I'll go on to describe as a form of epigenetic modification. But given um, yeah, the kind of uh, broader scope of this unit, I thought it'd be interesting to introduce this project which we've just started to work on, which is entitled um, Epigenetics, Environment, Embodiment and Equality, or I'll just refer to it as E4 for short. Um, so yeah, so again, um, just a brief bit of background to myself and my own research interests. So I did human sciences and then went on to do a PhD at the University of Bristol in molecular genetic and life course epidemiology, so uh, quite a mouthful. Um, but I've since uh, finished my PhD and I'm now a research associate within um, a cancer epidemiology programme, um, but with a p particular interest in epigenetic changes and the role of epigenetic changes as a potential biomarker and also as a potential mediator of disease risk. Um, so I'll outline some of, some of the projects that I've been working on to date. So yes, so in terms of the E4 project, just to say that this falls within a bigger um, grant funded by the ESRC and BBSRC um, entitled the Epigenetics and Social Science Network. And this network is um, formed of eight separate projects from researchers across the UK, um, but there's um, a, a big effort to try and integrate the different, the different projects within, a, a collaborative, uh, a co within collaborative research. So in terms of the E4 project, this is uh, led by Caroline Relton at the University of Bristol, who's um, my um, line manager and also the principal investigator um, there. Um, there's also some uh, PIs at other universities that I've listed here as well. Um, so yeah, so a bit of background about the E4 project. This project is um, essentially interested in looking at how we can use epigenetic data to understand um, biological embedding, so the effect of our environment, how that influences our biology and goes on to influence uh, health and disease risk, and potentially looking at epigenetic changes as, uh, as I say, a mediator um, between the environments which we're exposed and um, across the life course and the development of, uh, of, of disease. Um, so the E4 project uh, builds on eight separate longitudinal cohort studies. Um, so these are really uh, well, uh, rich um, phenotyped cohorts which have enrolled individuals at different stages in the life course. And we've obtained a lot of health data, a lot of uh, socioeconomic data from uh, these studies, as well as um, a vast amounts of epigenetic data. Um, which is increasingly uh, becoming available with the development of new technologies which allow us to measure epigenetic changes across the genome in large numbers of individuals. So in terms of the main objectives of the four projects, um, so going with the name, uh, first of all it's to understand the influence of complex exposures on the epigenome, so the influence of the environment. Uh, given that we find evidence for um, that the environment is influencing our epigenome, how can we use these epigenetic differences to inform um, about causal relationships both with respect to um, the exposures and with respect to uh, health and, health and behaviours. So that's the, the idea of embodiment. 
Um, and also, how can we understand the role of epigenetic variation in health inequality? So given that we, we, we've established um, that there are vast epigenetic differences um, between different ethnic groups, between males and females, um, so there's some indication that's also epigenetic changes uh, in relation to various uh, socioeconomic um, uh, strata. Can we use these epigenetic differences to inform us more about uh, disparities in, in, in health and disease? And finally, uh, the, the fourth objective is to look overall at understanding the interrelation between biological and social constructs um, with respect to the other three objectives. Uh, so here at Outline again is just the, pro uh, the project structure. Um, so specifically with respect to environment, we're interested in investigating the range of biosocial exposures which are listed here. So racial discrimination, economic hardship, educational performance, child adversity, and the effects these have on epigenetic changes. The embodiment strand is this idea of how do we identify whether the how the environment gets into the skin and ways that it alter human biological and developmental processes. And then finally, the equality strand is um, given these substantial differences between epigenetic patterns between different social groups. How can we use this to, uh, to inform about disease discordance? So a bit about epigenetic processes for those who aren't too familiar. These are those, they can be broadly defined as those processes which alter gene expression, so alter how our genes are coded into, into proteins, but they don't alter the actual underlying DNA code. Um, nonetheless, they can be replicated through cell division, and so they can be seen as quite stable imprint prints um, across the life course. Um, some general characteristics is they're usually, although not always, associated with a repression in gene expression, so downregulation of gene expression. And they're also a hallmark of carcinogenesis, so a lot of um, uh, cancers will show a, a vast downregulation or hypomethylation um, in relation to normal tissue. Um, and yeah, so the, the they're also influenced, sometimes seems a bit counterintuitive as a lot of people would see epigenetic processes as solely the effect of the environment, but actually epigenetic uh, differences are also um, influenced by underlying genetic architecture. Um, they're tissue specific, so this is why even though we've got the same DNA in all the cells in our body, they, they, they differentiate and, and some of that is, is related to um, the epigenetic code and the differences uh, in epigenetic profiles between the different cells. Um, and they're also modifiable. So whereas I said that they can be stable over the life course, they also are subject to change. And also by removing, uh, say, an environmental influence, then there can be seen to be a recovery in, um, epigenetic, uh, in the epigenetic profile. And so there's two main components of uh, epigenetic code. One's called DNA methylation, which is what I'll focus on today, and the other histone modifications. Uh, so DNA methylation is, in, in a kind of a chemical sense, is simply the addition of a methyl group, so CH3, um, to a cytosine base on the DNA code. So if a cytosine base acquires this uh, methyl group, it's said to be methylated. And quite often, um, you'll see here, points, positions in the genome where methyl groups tend to attach are when a cytosine base is, is situated adjacent to a guanine base. 
Um, so these become known as CPG sites. So I'll probably refer to CPG sites or CPGs throughout the talk because, as I say, these are the regions where methylation is most likely um, to occur. So in terms of me measuring DNA methylation, as I said, um, within the E4 project, we're acquiring a lot of epigenetic data and that this is in the form of genome-wide methylation data. So we use this um, B-chip or array to target um, different CPG sites across the whole genome, so 450,000 sites. So we have a really good idea of the effects of epigenetic changes across the whole of the DNA. Um, and as I say, the main focus is on these CPG sites. Um, and the array produces some intensity data which we can then interpret to identify the proportion of methylation uh, that occurs at a particular site. So as I kind of alluded to, DNA methylation may be seen as both um, a, a biomarker of exposure, uh, so it might, it's, it's, it's been associated with a range of various um, environmental factors, smoking potentially the largest um, the, the exposure which has the largest effects of the epigenome, which have been quite with findings which have been quite consistently replicated between different studies, and um, though uh, as you can see, other um, exposures, so pollution, alcohol, various toxicants, are also uh, shown to have a very strong effect on DNA methylation. The extent to which some of the uh, socioeconomic exposures I mentioned um, within the main objectives of E4 the extent to which they influence methylation has kind of not re really been fully elucidated. It's probably uh, largely um, due to kind of measurement difficulties in those um, particular exposures, so they're not as easy to capture as, say, whether a person smokes five or ten cigarettes a day. And so, yeah, so the epigenome offers potential to refine exposure measurements. Similarly, um, the uh, uh, DNA methylation may be seen as an exposure, and changes in DNA methylation through changes in gene expression um, may go on to influence disease. So as I mentioned, um, particularly in relation to cancer, we see these big changes in methylation profiles, um, which might in themselves be situated along the causal pathway towards disease risk. So I said at the start of the presentation that a big focus of mine has been looking at the effect of the association between DNA methylation and body mass index. Um, and obesity is a socially pattern exposure which has been linked with epigenetic variation. In recently, as this, in recent years, this has been um, achieved through large-scale analyses of methylation patterns, often in peripheral blood, so just blood samples taken from more often than not um, individuals who are part of these large cohort studies, studies and investigated in relation to uh, body mass index. So I've outlined here a few different studies which have been published perhaps in the last five to ten years, which have identified differences in methylation across the whole genome in relation to body mass index using technologies like the 450K array, which I mentioned. So, what, oh, so, sorry. so the largest of these studies that have been published to date is this one here, which was published in The Lancet in 2014. Um, by Dick et al. And this, um, this study involves a 450k analysis of initially 459 individuals. So when I say 450k analysis, um, what I mean is that the, um, the, the investigators would have established the associations between BMI and methylation at each of those 450,000 CPG sites. 
And amongst those 450,000 CPG sites, they'd look to identify which sites showed the biggest association with body mass index. Um, and obviously, because increasingly in epidemiology, we're, we're concerned about issues of bias and false positive results. So it's, it's really increasingly important to ensure that any results that we do find are replicated. So this study here uh, showed rep replication in two further studies. Um, so in terms of the sites which they showed to be, um, to be significant in the association that was observed, um, three CPG sites out of those 450,000 sites were shown to have a really robust association with body mass index. And interestingly, all three of these sites, so the, these three here, um, were found within the same region of the genome, which was in the gene called HIF3-alpha. So this is a hypoxia-inducible transcription factor, which has been uh, essentially originally linked with um, to hypoxia, so, um, so kind of a reduction in oxygen, and, and, the, and that in turn has been found to have various um, impact on energy expenditure and uh, metabolism. So it's quite plausibly is linked with body mass index. Um, and as I said, they went on to then replicate those findings in two further cohorts. So, there are, this, is, this is the study which has recently, um, most recently been um, conducted, which is a further EWAP, so a further epigenome-wide association study looking at BMI and methylation. So whereas this previous study conducted in 2014 identified three sites across the genome, associated with body mass index. This larger study, so it consisted of over 5,000 individuals this time, found 187 sites, which was found to be robustly associated with BMI and confirmed in replication cohorts. So this kind of, um, this recent study kind of alludes to this idea of the importance of doing these kind of analyses in really large numbers of individuals. So whereas previously we had a few hundred individuals in the discovery cohort, now um, we're increasingly getting more data due to reduction in costs of these kind of technologies which can be applied um, kind of more, more thoroughly. So yeah, so, so this is quite, quite new. As I said, this study is yet to be published and it has been accepted in nature. And it is quite interesting, although obviously people, people once they see results like this, they think, right, well, given that methylation is... Uh, is found to be associated with BMI, what does that mean? What does that mean in a clinical sense? What does that mean in terms of establishing directionality? So does BMI cause changes in methylation or alternatively does, methyl alternatively does methylation cause changes in BMI? And we can't fully elucidate this from these studies shown here, mainly because they're doing cross-sectional analyses. So we just can say there's an association. We don't know much to, to, uh, with regards to which direction um, the association goes in. So yeah, so in which direction is the causal pathway. Um, this is important because if we find that DNA methylation itself is causal of changes in, in adiposity, then we can maybe target DNA methylation um, we, so through kind of various therapeutic interventions which might then um, lead to reduction in obesity rates. So obviously it's got major potentials for, for these kind of um, therapeutic targets. Alternatively, if we find that methylation is influenced by BMI, so BMI being the causal agent, this still can be informative as it links in with that idea 
mentioned about the, the idea of embodiment and how adiposity might, in a way, change, um, lead to changes in methylation, which could then, over the life course, influence later disease risk. So one way to try and unpick this causal pathway and to see whether DNA causes methylation or DNA methylation causes BMI or vice versa is with the use of longitudinal cohorts. Because if we have measured in serial um, at multiple time points, measures of body mass index and methylation levels, then we can, we can start to look at the temporality and show which, which kind of, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg in a way, because we've got that, that time ordering. Um, so yeah, so prospective analysis is being conducted within the E4 project. I mentioned those eight different cohort studies, which capture um, both methylation and body mass index um, at multiple time points across the life course. This provides insights into the temporal relationship between the exposures and epigenetic changes, and can be used to establish uh, the importance of, of timing. So, at which point in the life course does BMI cause changes in methylation or vice versa. And um, it can be used to investigate as well how the epigenome might change over time. So I said that sometimes we see stability in methylation change, sometimes we see a recovery, and how and how might that then link with later health outcomes. And more um, probably most importantly, we can use um, this longitudinal analysis to interrogate causality in the associations. So I'm going to mainly focus on my work with the, using one of these cohort studies, which is called the Avon Longitudinal uh, Study of Parents and Children. Uh, this study is uh, run in Bristol, uh, so it forms quite a large point, part of my PhD. And it's a study, um, a birth cohort study, which recruited pregnant women in 1991. Um, and as you can see here, it's from uh, over 14,000 uh, 14, families were recruited into this study. Um, and since 1991, both the, the women and their children have been followed up. Uh, and so the children are now 25, 26. Um, and we've got lots of data, both, on, as I say, on various uh, phenotypes. We've got uh, various cognitive measures, uh, socioeconomic variables, as well as these biological variables, so the epigenetics and genetic uh, data on these individuals. So it's, it's a really, uh, really great resource um, in terms of the wealth of data available. So this just shows the different time points that we've got uh, various types of data on. Um, and at the bottom here, you can see these are the time points where we've got uh, data on methylation. So in the offspring, we've got information on methylation at birth, at age seven, and at age 15 to 17. And I can't, oh, I'm trying to find whereabouts BMI might be in here, but we basically got serial BMI measures also across the life course. So, yeah, so because we've got all this data right from birth up till, you know, now into early adulthood, um, one really fascinating area within epigenetic research is this idea of early life exposures, so the intuitive environment and the impacts that has on changes in methylation. Because, the, yeah, the, the epigenome is very sensitive to these very early developmental uh, time points. Um, and which can lead to the establishment of a methylation signature, which can then uh, be maintained over the life course. And this is within uh, this, this um, 
this, this uh, area of research called DOHAD, which is the Developmental Origins of Health and Disease, which people might be familiar with, which is the idea that things may happen during pregnancy, which can impact on the child's health and development throughout their whole life. And epigenetic changes may be one uh, mechanism in which there's a kind of um, like historical memory of that in utero exposure. So a researcher within our group, who's uh, Gemma Sharp, conducted this analysis to look at the effects of maternal pre-pregnancy BMI um, and gestational weight gain on offspring methylation at birth. Um, so what she did here was, similar to what I said those previous cross-sectional studies did, was she conducted what's known as an epigenome-wide association study. So within this kind of overwhelming plot here, each individual site is, is a CPG site, um, and on the y-axis is the kind of strength of the association, so the minus log 10p value. So the, the, the highest points here um, show areas where um, methylation is most strongly associated with BMI. Um, so as you can see, actually, there's, so there's a threshold here and a threshold here. Actually, Gemma found that there was quite a, a large response in methylation in relation to underweight, maternal underweight, um, although there were still some sites associated with maternal obesity. So that's quite interesting that she found that. And as I said, this was in relation to um, offspring methylation at birth, so measured in cord blood. So the next thing she was interested in was whether these changes that seem to be widespread at birth, whether they persist into later life, and so whether they might um, then go on to influence the offspring's health. <coughs> so what she showed was that what she did was she investigated the change in epigenetic variation at these sites over time because she, wanted, she was interested in seeing how these traits of interest might interact um, with patterns of methylation change. Um, and what she, she found was some kind of varying results where some, at some sites there was, uh, seems to be a recovery in methylation, um, whereas at some others there seemed to be more of a persistent difference in those women, those offspring who were exposed to maternal obesity and those who weren't. So why is this of interest? So it's this idea of persistent versus transient epigenetic changes, um, which is important in this idea of metabolic pro pro programming and this DOHAD concept that I mentioned. And what is generally um, understood is that there are long-term epigenetic changes um, that persist over the life course, and these can then go on to, to lead to kind of downstream consequences over the life. Whereas if the, the changes are more transient, maybe that means they might play a role in, in very early development, or alternatively, maybe they, they might just kind of be um, just like redundant signals which then uh, just attenuate and so don't really have any long-term uh, consequences. <coughs> so I've, I've shown there an example of where we use this life course um, approach to identify changes um, in methylation in relation to adipositive, so going from BMI to methylation. But there have been similar studies which have done it the other way around, so looked at, at, at methylation in early life to see whether that predicts adipositive or obesity development. And indeed, the, these um, few studies listed here have seen, have, do seem to show that there are, there are some uh, examples of, of sites across the genome where, um, where they can predict um, later offspring uh, adipositive. Though, again, it's kind of difficult to, to completely unpick 
the direction of causality here because yes, methylation at birth might influence um, later offspring fat, fat mass, but if that methylation at birth is just a response to their mothers being overweight or them having a high birth weight, it's still really difficult to try and unpick the direction of effect. Um, so what we did in this paper here was we really wanted to, to get into this idea of directionality between BMI and methylation. And we used a, a range of approaches to try and, to try and unpick this. Uh, the first of which was these longitudinal associations where we had repeated measures of methylation um, and uh, adiposity at birth, age 7 and age 17, in the ALSPAC cohort. And we looked at all of the interrelations between uh, these variables at the various time points to try and give a really good indication as to which might be the overall direction of effect. So in terms of the results of this uh, longitudinal analysis, I'll just put a table in here. But the most important things to focus on are... so. The exposure and the outcomes so here is shown methylation at birth and then later childhood BMI. And there was no real evidence for an, a strong association um, with, uh, between methylation at birth and childhood BMI. And actually, where there was some evidence, that was actually in the opposite direction to what you would see in cross sectional analyses. So, so that was quite interesting. Whereas when we looked at it the other way, so um, birth weight and then later childhood methylation, we did see um, some evidence of an association which was quite consistent to what we see observationally. So given an indication that in this context, it looks as though adiposity was causing um, methylation change rather than vice versa. Though as I say, that, that wasn't enough for us. We, we were kind of slightly convinced at this point that it was going in that direction, but we kind of wanted more evidence. Um, so we used another approach uh, called Mendelian randomization. <coughs> so this approach is, is really widespread at the University of Bristol. We use it a lot um, for establishing causality in epidemiology, although it's quite difficult to explain, but I'll, I'll, try, I'll try my best. Um, the best way I, I find to explain it is with an, an analogy to a randomised controlled trial, um, which you may be familiar with. So the idea of um, Mendelian randomization is that it uses genetic variants to establish causal associations. And an analogy with an RCT, whereas in a randomised controlled trial, an individual is randomised with respect to um, a particular intervention, in Mendelian randomization, an individual is randomised with respect to which genetic variant they inherit. So given meiosis and uh, independent assortment, the, the different uh, genetic variants which we acquire are essentially attributable to chance. And so it's this, this, chance, in, this chance role in which, um, in which variants we receive that means that it's randomised with respect to any other exposures. So in terms of, you might be familiar with the concept of confounding, in terms of confounding, this is, is, is negligible, as the genetic variants we receive are unlikely to be associated with any other conventional risk factor which we might think of. And similarly, in a randomised control trial, the randomisation in treatment between the different groups means that um, risk factors should be evenly distributed between a control and a treatment arm. So, yeah, so as well as this idea that the randomization process it should get at causality by the fact that it, the, the, ex, the variant we acquire isn't associated with other risk factors, apart from the one that we're interested in, 
Another uh, major feature of this, which is useful um, when trying to unpick directionality, is that because we receive these genetic variants at birth, we already have a good idea of temporality. In that, so a genetic variant for BMI is going to be there at birth. So there's no way in which methylation will influence that genetic variant. <laughs> so yeah, so just to outline in the kind of other way the assumptions of this approach. If we take X to be an exposure of interest, so say BMI, and Y to be an outcome, so methylation, um, usually this association might be attributed to, to various confounding factors. But the use of a genetic variant, which isn't associated with these factors, can be used to establish a true causal effect between our exposure and our outcome. Um, and also, given that the arrows are going this way rather than this way, we know that a gene that causes a change in X so causes a change in BMI um, is then going, would then go on to influence methylation rather than methylation being able to influence BMI. So yeah, so G is associated with our exposure, G is independent of any confounding factors, and G is also independent of our outcome given its association with the exposure. And just to, again, illustrate that. So here I'm, I'm saying FTO, which people might be familiar with. It's um, this fat mass and obesity-associated gene, which is the first common variant which, has been, which was established to be associated with body mass index. Um, although that is just an example here, is now the most recent uh, study investigating the ge uh, common genetic contribution to body mass index identified 97 variants. Uh, which are commonly associated. And so we can compile from all of this genetic information a kind of a, a genetic proxy for um, the exposure we're interested in and take that forward to investigate associations with, um, with our outcomes of methylation. So as I said, this approach has been quite uh, commonly used within uh, standard epidemiological approaches, but it can also be used within epigenetic approaches um, similar to the ones that we conduct. So given, going back to our initial problem of this association between uh, methylation and BMI and not knowing which way is, is the true causal direction, we can use, so here I'm referring to some SNPs for genetic variants, which can be used as causal anchors to get a hold on which direction um, the association is going in. So here this would be a, a variant associated with body mass index, so like the FTO gene, whereas here this is a variant associated with methylation. And so by using these genetic markers, which we know are there from birth and we know are not associated with other uh, variables, we can get this better understanding of causality in this association. <coughs> so again... We can use this association between the variant and methylation, the variant and BMI, to try and establish this causal effect here. And similarly, uh, this is for, for BMI onto methylation. So first of all then, in terms of working through uh, the, the analysis pipeline, first thing we did was to establish whether body mass index was causing methylation uh, by using a genetic marker for body mass index. So here we used actually 32 variants associated with BMI in a Mendelian randomization approach to establish a causal effect of body mass index on methylation at this particular locus. Um, and what we did was we 
we don't we don't have to look too much into the numbers. But general, but what you can um, see is that we had an expected effect. So this expected effect would be what we would see based on um, what we know about the genetic variance association with BMI and the genetic variance association in population. So this expected effect would be like the true causal effect based on these genetic associations. Whereas the observed effect is just is sim simply that, it's the observational association irrespective of, of any um, use of genetic variants. And for the association between um, looking at BMI going to methylation, we actually showed that the, the, what we observed and what we expected based on the, the causal estimate using the genetic variants was, was quite similar. So there's no evidence for a difference there. So that was giving more indication that there was a causal association from BMI to methylation. <clears throat> Similarly, we used a genetic variant, this time associated with uh, methylation changes at this HIF-3A locus um, in an approach. Uh, so we took these two variants here to proxy for methylation at HIF-3-alpha. And here we actually showed that there was some evidence for a difference. So the magnitude of the effects that we would expect if the association were causal was not what we saw observationally. So this provided no supporting evidence for a causal association from methylation to BMI. Um, so that was like, that's now two pieces of evidence that we'd use. We'd use the longitudinal analysis and we'd use the Mendelian genetic association analysis to both provide more evidence that at the HIF-3A locus, it didn't look like methylation was causing BMI. It looked like BMI was causing methylation. Uh, just kind of the final nail in the coffin was to do the intergenerational an analysis. So as I said earlier, this was done on a genome-wide scale within um, ALSPAC previously. We were just interested in looking at um, variants within this particular region of the genome, so just the HIF-3-alpha. And what we showed there was that there was some evidence for an effect of maternal BMI on offspring methylation in, in this region. And as we know that it's unlikely that the offspring's own methylation will influence their mother's BMI, this too can give an insight into a causal direction of effect. Um, another interesting thing about this analysis was that, and which is quite interesting as an insight for the, the DOHAD paradigm, is that the associations we found between maternal BMI and offspring DNA methylation was, were much larger than those we found between paternal B, BMI and offspring methylation. So this kind of gives us an indication that perhaps the intrauterine environment is a particularly important point um, in the life course, uh, whereby maternal BMI can influence methylation levels. Um, so as you, as you may remember, near the start of this study, when I was talking about the original cross-sectional analyses, the most recent study identified 187 CPG sites associated with BMI. And I've just shown um, the various causal analysis methods to establish directionality with HIF3-alpha, which was just one of those um, 187 sites. So... What this, this most recent study did was it was applied Mendelian randomization as part of, a, a, as, as well as longitudinal analyses actually, as part of the downstream analysis once they'd established those 187 CPGs. Um, and what they showed was similar to what we showed, where we looked at this kind of predicted or expected effect based on genetic associations with that, what we 
we see observationally was that in, when, we look, when looking at the association between BMI causing, uh, methylation causing BMI, this looked completely flat. So if, you, if, you were to if we were to say that methylation were causing BMI, we'd expect a true perfect uh, correlation here, which we didn't see. Whereas going the other way, so methylation is a consequence of BMI, um, indeed there was more evidence in that direction. So yeah, so we saw that the predicted effect was more, uh, more often similar to the observational effect. So what, so what, what does this tell us now? Now that we know that generally it looks as though BMI is causing changes in methylation, how can we understand that in terms of this idea of embodiment and, and what does that mean for, for going forward in terms of looking at methylation as a predictor of, of disease? Well, if adiposity is, is leading to a change in methylation, this change in methylation might then go on to predict some of the downstream consequences of adiposity. So maybe DNA methylation could serve as a better marker um, for aspects of adiposity which aren't commonly picked up in, say, a measure of body mass index, and which might be then used as a, as a better measure of any downstream outcomes. Alternatively or additionally, methylation itself might be playing a true biological role in the downstream, downstream consequences of adiposity. Um, which also warrants evaluation. And this, going back to this idea of equality and how can we use this information to maybe inform about um, differences in disease risk between different populations. If methylation were a, a, a better measure of various exposure, of various underlying risk factor than some of the conventional measures, then maybe we could, could use this information um, in in groups where conventional risk factors do not fully explain an increased risk. So you may be familiar with Indian Asians who generally don't present uh, the same risk factors for type 2 diabetes as, um, as Europeans. So generally, whereas in, in Europeans, BMI and overweight is the biggest risk factor. You see quite a lot of diabetic Indian Asians that don't have um, kind of a higher BMI, as it were. Um, but there are big differences in methylations between these, these different groups. And so using these methylation differences might provide new opportunities for risk stratification and the prevention of type 2 diabetes. That's just one, one example of an outcome. And actually, the this, this same paper that I mentioned showing the 187 sites actually did look at this, this um, possibility of using methylation as a predictive biomarker and what they found was, so it's, it's kind of hard to see, but this MRS is a methylation risk score. So it's taking those 187 variants to, uh, to act as a predictive mar marker of incident diabetes. And what they, they found was that methylation as a, as a risk predictor actually performed better, um, quite a lot better than, than conventional markers, um, conventional predictive markers such as overweight or uh, C-reactive protein. Um, and then these various models were adjusted for adiposity, so showing that over and above any effects of adiposity, this methylation score could still predict uh, incident diabetes risk. So, yeah, so in summary, uh, there are lots of both endogenous and exogenous exposures which have been linked to variation in epigenetic patterns. And we have shown specifically with respect to um, adiposity and BMI specifically that epigenetic signatures are dynamic in nature 
Longitudinal analyses may reveal a recovery or a persistence of epigenetic change over time, which might inform uh, health consequences. The epigenome may provide a useful proxy for an exposure measurement. And with respect to adiposity, we found more evidence for an effect of adiposity on methylation than vice versa. Um, and so we suggest that steps should be taken to investigate these epigenetic changes, both as a mediator of health-related and disease outcomes, but also as a better biomarker of prediction of some of these outcomes than conventional risk factors. So within the E4 project, um, the aim is to apply similar methods of causal inference to investigate methylation in relation to some of these more complex risk factors which, as I said, are more difficult generally to capture than, say, a measure of body mass index or smoking. And initial analyses seem to suggest that um, socioeconomic position and methylation, that there's no strong signals uh, for these, for these uh, risk factors. And maybe, maybe we need a better measure um, of, of these factors in order to, to, to capture uh, variation. Um, on the other hand, as, as I, I mentioned earlier, ethnicity and sex do show dramatic differences in DNA methylation. And there's a, a, a need to understand the biological and social interrelations of this and to try and unpick um, evidence of discordance and what that might inform about um, health, health differences. So that's it. So overall, I'd like to acknowledge um, all the uh, various collaborators at the University of Bristol and others from the E4 project. Uh, various funders and thank you all for listening and I welcome any questions.